What's up, y'all? And welcome to the Poison Arrow Podcast for July 29th, 2016. I am Marcus, also known as EMB. And oh man, the gaming industry is moving, my friends. Uh, you know, sometimes we go through this these these periods where it feels like nothing interesting is going on, but uh the truth is that a lot of huge things are happening behind the scenes. And I personally feel like that's where we are right now. I don't know. Let's just call it a hunch. Let's just say it's a hunch. And I just think that that's what's going on. Uh, but before we begin with the news, I want to give a big thank you to Indie Mouse. He sent me this wicked new title card for Poison Arrow. <laughs> new logo hype right here, y'all. And I just, man, it surprised the hell out of me. And I think it looks cool as shit. So thank you. <laughs> And on top of that, we've got a lot of cool news for this month. <laughs> well, hold on one second. Let me let me, let me get my shit. Let me get my shit together for a second. Whew. News. This is news. This is <laughs> today's topics include who owns souls, fighting games on ESPN, cheering on Twitch. I don't know why I'm. I don't know why I'm laughing. I don't know why I'm in such a good mood. Scummy, scummy scammers and gambling and Nintendo. Let's it go. Let's dive into the Let's try to dive into the news if I can just fucking stop laughing. Stop that laughing. One of these days you're going to laugh yourself to death. Yeah, Roger Rabbit, anybody? No? Okay. In an interview with Miyazaki Hidetaka, president of FromSoft, creator of Souls, and all-around swell chap, uh, Game Spot? <laughs> I always want to say GameStop, right? You know, I always get GameSpot and GameStop. I always want to... I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. They, around here, they call that Spoonerism. You know, the kind of dyslexic thing where you swap letters around. GameSpot, not GameStop. That's a store. GameSpot's not... Okay. Ask some more about the future of Soul sequels. And Big M finally dropped a big bomb that I have been anticipating for a big minute. He said, quote... The Dark Souls series is Bandai Namco Entertainment's IP and Demon's Souls and Bloodborne are um, Sony Interactive Entertainment's IP. Hence, the decision to do a remake or remastering is under their jurisdiction. For me and for From Software, I don't think we'll be involved with their happening, but it could happen through another developer. So, there you go. Dark Souls belongs to Bandai and Demon's Souls and Bloodborne belong to Sony, period, end of story. And I think that this should make a lot of things make sense in retrospect. Um, I've had a lot of people asking me stuff like, are the Dark Souls comics canon? Like, is this is this official story, etc., etc., etc. And uh, my answer is this. Dark Souls belongs to Bandai Namco. They decide what is and what isn't. Uh, and from what I have seen so far, Big M himself is extremely picky with licensing choices. I can't get too specific here, but I do know of some behind-the-scene examples of projects that he turned down. Uh, this was a while ago, but I have no reason to believe that his philosophy or vision have changed at all on that point. Uh, and in any case, the examples that I'm thinking of were far more conservative uses of the Dark Souls IP. So it was always difficult for me to imagine him ever okaying the comic series. Uh, and in fact, when they first started talking about the, the comics, I was like, okay, well, I guess Bandai owns Dark Souls at this point. And when Big M says that Dark Souls 3 is a quote-unquote turning point, what I think he really means is it's all on Namco and whatever other developers they bring in at this point. Now, does this mean the comics are bad? No, it doesn't. Uh, from what I've seen of the comics, they don't really preserve the original spirit of the series at all. Uh, but that's my personal assessment, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they're good as comics. 
for that matter, I don't see how they could really preserve the original spirit of the, of the series. Not not in a traditional comic format that's like heavily character based. This is something people have always asked. Do you think a Dark Souls movie would be cool? Do you think a Dark Souls comic uh, or a Dark Souls anime? Honestly, I don't. I, I don't think any of those really stand a chance to um, get the, the spirit of the series across very well because it's not a character based thing. Like it's it's very strictly a role playing thing. Like you are a nameless undead or a chosen ash or whatever like you um you create your own character's backstory like it's a world for you to explore and i just i don't think that having dialogue between uh other characters and stuff like this is something that works for dark souls i, I think that you exploring the world the game format is perfect for it like letting you explore that world in role play uh, so I just don't really personally think it, it, the series, the soul of the series, if you will pardon that, uh, lends itself well to those other media. Now, as a comic or as a movie or as a book, they might be good. For example, if you read the Dark Souls comics, it might be that you think these are pretty, these are pretty good comics. But, um, in terms of preserving the spirit of the original series, I think it's tough. And that's just my, that's just me. And honestly, I'm not a comic fan. So, and I'm not really a movie fan <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I don't read too much, but you know, I do love the, I do love the video, but back onto, um, Bandai Namco owning souls. Does it mean that future souls titles are doomed? Not necessarily. I think that they'll naturally arouse a whole lot less interest from, from me than say whatever from soft new titles are. I mean, I already a couple a couple episodes back, I made a podcast, Souls is Dead, and what I was trying to say is I think things are going to be completely different if, if and probably when there's a Dark Souls 4. I mean, this is just my guess. I'm pretty sure that there's going to be another Dark Souls. Um, I mean, I expect, I strongly expect for there to be future Dark Souls titles. I don't know about Bloodborne, uh, but I think that Dark Souls is a critical property for Bandai. Bloodborne is a little bit less so for Sony, but... Um, Either way, I think that Dark Souls 3 DLC will represent the end of From's involvement in it, and I'm pretty okay with that because um, I just I think that they're better off doing other stuff. You know, in the first place, it isn't just about Lordron to me or Yarnum or Boltaria. Uh, I really think that given the time and resources and like creative freedom, Big M and From can get me invested in a new place, a new setting, a new body of lore. It's 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 really just more about their way of doing things. I enjoy the gameplay first and then the setting second, and then I get drawn into the story, and that's the way it has to go for me. If I'm not having fun playing the game, like if the gameplay is not really good, I'm not really enjoying it, then I don't care about everything else. And then if the settings don't really appeal to me, then I'm unlikely to care about it. But once you start meeting that golden standard on those other things, then I start to think, oh, well, what's going on in the lore here? And that's kind of the way it was with Dark Souls with me. Uh, despite having played Demon Souls and knowing how deep it actually was the first time I went through Dark Souls, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, story, whatever. This game's really fun. It's got some sick style. It's really good. And it was after having completed it uh, the first time is when I went back and I started going, hmm. You know what? On this new game plus playthrough, I'm starting to notice there's actually some pretty interesting stuff going on here, but it had to draw me in like that. And I will say that they've strayed a bit from creating worlds that really draw me in the way Demon's Souls and Dark Souls did. And I'm really hoping that they can get back to it. 
Um, I think that having the freedom to create what they want will lead to great things. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that with Kadokawa's backing, you guys forgot about the Kadokawa deal, didn't you? But I'm hoping that with Kadokawa's backing that they'll be able to do just that. Um, I'm personally glad that Bandai has supported Dark Souls the way they have. Because just them bringing the series to PC enabled more people to experience than ever would have otherwise. And it kind of catapulted FromSoft into this big big thing you know um so i mean i'm glad about that and i'm glad that sony supported bloodborne because bloodborne that was a huge unique experiment and i think it's amazing how it became a wonderful game some people call it game of all time I'm, i won't go quite that far but it became this wonderful uh, amazing experience while still being a spectacular failure in some ways I know people always like freak out. You can't call it a failure, but I'm specifically talking about the Chalice Dungeons. It should have added a ton of depth and replay value. That was an experiment that they were they were uh, messing with, but they ended up being just a grind. And that was a huge part of that game. Like that, that was a huge part of the overall package of Bloodborne was those Chalice Dungeons. And, you know, people like me end up just ignoring them completely because they're just boring. Um... Uh, but the basic campaign and story was so unique that it didn't fucking matter. The gameplay innovations as well as the eldritch twist in the story. Um, I think that that game was a uh, an experiment and a huge gamble that paid off overall while still not reaching its full potential. And that's what I mean when I say it was a spectacular failure. Just because it could have been amazing. And I think it fell just short of that. And the Chalice Dungeons are the reason. The um, the basic game, the the story, the the straightforward path through the the game is great. It's great, but um, yeah. But I bet that From has learned some very valuable lessons from that experience. And in any case, without Sony taking a gamble on that, I'm not sure that From would have been able to make such an ambitious title so quickly. My larger point is that I hope they are able to take the audience that Bandai has helped bring them, along with the knowledge they've gained from their ambitious collaboration with Sony, and channel all of that into their own new franchises, something that they can fully control, from design to production to licensing. I mean, I don't know that that will happen, but I really hope so. I really hope so. And I'm hoping that we get some hints about what's going on later this year. Maybe Tokyo Game Show... Uh, maybe later on. I suspect that we won't hear much until after or at least around the time that the first Dark Souls 3 DLC is nearing completion. Uh, I don't really know what their schedule is going to be like, but I'm I'm certainly interested in what's going to happen. By the way, in the last podcast, as you guys remember, I critiqued Dark Souls 3 a bit for its linearity. And, you know, some people agreed, some people didn't agree, some people saw where I was coming from, some people didn't see where I was coming from. But for the record, just for the record, Miyazaki-san agreed. Uh, when asked for his retrospective opinion on Dark Souls 3, he called GameStop Spot, If we talk only in relation to portions of the game which won't be affected by updates and add-ons, I think there was room for improvement, such as with the map design. I believe the maps we prepared are well suited for exploration considering that the size of the map is much larger and dimensional than before, but I also feel that the way the maps connected to each other was a bit weak, narrowing the level of freedom in relation to the order in which players could face the game. In other words, pretty much exactly what I said before. Uh, and I think that this is something like people might get the wrong impression sometimes for me. Like when I criticize a game, or when I decide not to play it for a little while, 
some people decide that I hate a game, that's I can still like it. I can still respect it overall and just, you know, I can still critique stuff, right? And Big M himself, he is super cool in the sense that he always has this very good sense of perspective on the games that he makes. He can take criticism and even criticize them himself or acknowledge weaker aspects of the games. Like, and I guess it's easy to do that when you have faith and confidence that overall you've made something that is very good in the first place. Um, but you know, that's one reason why I'm not shy about discussing things that could be better, like the NPC interactions or whatever. I just want them to make progress and keep making better games. And fortunately that's from's goal as well. Like, you know, it's cool. He sees it the same way that a lot of us do. He's, he's sitting here looking at it going, well, this is, uh, overall, it's a little bit more linear than I would have, I would have liked. I would have liked for this to had stronger connections between the maps. That's what he's saying. And I agree with him. And in the end, I feel more and more that I am overall fairly satisfied with Dark Souls 2, 3, and Bloodborne as games, but they just really don't have that true spark that Demon's Souls and Dark Souls had. And it's not a rose-tinted glasses thing. It's not a nostalgia thing because I've played all of these games so much and so frequently that it's not like I'm looking back on some fond memory. Of I mean, like, they're just they're just different like they're just naturally different and i think part of it the the map interconnectivity in dark souls is one of the big the big things like it, it really is but even with demon souls there was something there that is kind of lacking in some of the later releases but i still feel like the source of that spark persists in fromsoft and that truly great games are ahead but i'm also a fan so take it as you will <laughs> next evo the biggest fighting game tournament of the year. And this year, it was broadcast live on ESPN2. What? I mean, video games making it on a national TV isn't strictly new, but I suspect that this is something that will only grow from here. And in the first place, a lot of people were pissed off. Video games aren't sports. Blah, 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 blah. Motherfuckers, listen. ESPN2 also hosts Spelling Bees and Poker. i glad we had this talk. Personally, I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn if video games are considered sports or not. It doesn't matter. They're, they can be competitive activities. I mean, depending on the game, obviously. Street Fighter is a competitive game. You don't want to consider it a sport. Whatever. I don't care. It's a competitive activity. And honestly, it can be more fair in a general sense than traditional sports in that fewer people are barred from competing based on physical attributes or handicaps. Mind you, I'm not shit-talking sports with this. I fucking love sports. If you follow me on Twitter, you've seen how it goes. Uh, World Cups, Euros, Champions League. But for that matter, I've also been following the NFL and the NBA my entire life, too. Then, then there's collegiate sports on top of that. You've seen me in, you've seen me in my MSU hat, man. But in terms of genetic barriers to entry into high-level competition, physical sports naturally have more than video games do. They just do. Me, I love games. I love competition. I love the excitement, the thrill, the legends that are born for that. And when I say that I love games, I'm not just talking about I love video games. I'm talking about sports and video games. Sports are games too. It's a football game. It's a basketball game. I love games. I love competition. I love it. Uh, and you know what? Apparently, there is an audience for this. I mean, it's not like we didn't already know that, but uh, Evo averaged about 200,000 viewers for Street Fighter V Top 8 on ESPN2, according to what I've been able to dig up online. There was roughly another 200,000 who watched live on Twitch on the, the separate streams that they had for it. There's probably going to be some overlap 
overlap in there, you know, where somebody had it on Twitch and had it on ESPN2 or whatever. But we're talking between 200,000 and 400,000 viewers, live viewers. And that's an important point. Hell, my most viewed video on this channel has something like 1.7 million views at this point, but it took four years to reach that point. So when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of live viewers, that's a big deal. Make no mistake. Instead of comparing this to football or basketball or something like that, let's compare this to another growing sports league in the U.S., something without a 70-plus year history. All right, let's look at something newish. Let's look at the MLS. Uh, Major League Soccer games for 2016 have an average viewership of about 300,000. And in 2015, it was just like 235,000. They've actually experienced a lot of growth this year. Um, but we're talking between 200 to 300,000 views on these MLS games. Now, there's a couple of different ways to take this. One would be to say, well, the biggest fighting game event of the year has a draw comparable to an average MLS game. Another way would be to go fighting games are putting up similar numbers to an established sports league that has had a consistent marketing push for years. It's difficult to say which is closer to the truth in all of this, but there is an audience and we're starting to see this kind of diversification of advertisers too, uh, because what was once strictly a Mountain Dew and Doritos now includes the like of Geico, Hello, and I think it's no coincidence at all that Capcom has introduced advertising restrictions in the official Pro Tour rules. No pornography, alcohol, weapons, or tobacco. Notably missing from that list is gambling. From what I could see, I, I didn't find it. It's, it's prohibited at the events, but not for advertising. At least not explicitly, not that I could find. And gambling, man, gambling is a big deal. And it's becoming an even bigger one. If you've been listening to Poison Arrow, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you know I've touched on issues posed by Japanese gotcha systems and mobile gaming business models. Um, I recommend going back and checking those out if you haven't heard that. But um, the major sports leagues in the U.S. have been developing partnerships with odds makers, both secretly and openly, uh, in preparation for an expansion of possible legalized sports betting in the U.S. Uh, for those of you guys who aren't aware... It, sports betting in the U.S. is illegal in a lot of places, in a lot of places. Um, but betting via fantasy drafts is already a huge industry. Uh, betting via fantasy fantasy football or whatever, it's considered in a lot of places a skill-based game because you, based on your knowledge of, say, the NFL, you'll do better or worse in general, it's there's still a luck element because you don't know how any given athlete's going to perform on any given day or when they're going to get hurt or whatever. But um, it's it's legal in a lot of places, whereas betting on actual sports is not. And uh, it's already a huge industry, albeit one beset with challenges. But the truth is that gambling brings in money. Gambling brings in views. And ESPN knows that more than anyone. And you know what else people are gambling on these days? The Vidya. Games, man, games. People are gambling on video games. And where there's money in gambling, there's filthy fucking scammers too. Um, look at the case of T. Martin and Pro Syndicate. All right. For, if you haven't heard about this story, this is crazy. I mean, it's crazy, but it's not really super unexpected. Um, a couple of popular Counter-Strike players who put up videos of themselves winning big on a cool new gambling site that they found. Uh, of course, it turns out that these shitheads own the site, right? 
Like they're, they're, you guys are smart. So I'm sure you already see the ethical and legal problems with this, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and break this down a little bit. First, you have to disclose when you are paid to promote a product or when you're involved with it in a deeper way. And why wouldn't you anyway? Right. Like when I talk about a future press guide, I'm proud as hell to say I helped make this. I worked hard and I think it's good. If you're interested in it, please check it out. But that's not what's going on here. See, here's the second big point. These cats could control the outcome of their bets and stage victories. So they would post videos, how to win $13,000 in five minutes, CSGO betting, all caps, yeah. Well, the real answer to that is the way to earn, or the way to win $13,000 in five minutes in CSGO betting is to own a gambling site that you can rig and convince suckers to bet on it. Easy peasy. The biggest issue in this, well, one of the biggest issues, is that they are specifically going after kids with this stuff. Like, it's it's a young audience, right? And you know, there are a lot of brilliant young people out there in this world. I remember, because I not only have experience being a kid myself, but I'm also a father, and I worked for several years as a teacher. I know how smart you little bastards are, but kids don't always have enough experience to understand the full consequences of everything they do. Uh, things like gambling addiction is a real thing, y'all. It, it, it's real. And there are plenty of adults who can't handle it. Hell, it's the reason those gotcha systems I was referring to earlier have come under such scrutiny in, in Japan. Because they aim to cash in on big, on the big users, the heavy users, the whales, who can't control themselves. And anyone who ate a big pile of candy for breakfast the morning after Halloween probably knows how that shit gonna turn out. It's funny to me too, because I'm reminded of a, a similar situation in which a libertarian was debating with a conservative about the decriminalization of drugs like cocaine and heroin in the United States. And the libertarian's viewpoint was, well, if it's legalized tomorrow, are you going to go out and start doing it? No, you won't, because you understand that it's bad, and neither will I. And at the surface level, that that makes sense, right? But when you stop and you think more deeply about it, you understand, well, not everyone is me. Some people will start doing it if they have easier access. Some people will start doing it if they have the tacit approval of it not being criminalized. And then those people are at risk themselves and become a danger to those around them. That's how I see it anyway. But I just think it's all well and fine to think of humans as some bastion of inner strength and wisdom. But the truth is that people have moments of weakness in their lives. Times when they are desperate. Times when they're lost and miserable and they don't know what to do. And... Everybody goes through something like this. Everybody does. Some people catch it far, far worse than others. And you find these people in these vulnerable positions, there have to be some protections. I strongly believe that. And kids who don't necessarily understand the possible outcome of their actions of things like gambling can't be allowed to gamble. You just, you can't. And they shouldn't be allowed to be targeted by ne'er-do-wells. And it's funny, you can't really say criminal about this sort of activity, at least not in the U.S., uh, from the Federal Trade Commission site on their endorsement guides, quote unquote, the guides are not regulations and so there are no civil penalties associated with them. But if advertisers don't follow the guides, the FTC may decide to investigate whether the practices are unfair or deceptive under the FTC Act. Pretty murky there, right? Like whether or not what has been done here, like with the owners of a gambling site <laughs> rigging uh, rigging rounds and showing themselves winning and not disclosing that they actually own it and acting like it's something that they just found. Probably unfair and deceptive, I would say. Whether or not the FTC is going to do anything about it, I don't know. Uh, I'll say this. I think that gamers and development companies should lead the charge on campaigning for concrete, 
reasonable regulations to be put in place. And I think we need to do it now for a couple of reasons. First, it's the right fucking thing to do. Second, if we don't, eventually you'll have some politicians smell an easy opportunity for a big PR win and you'll end up with legislation restricting games in ways that aren't reasonable. I'm not trying to fear monger here, but it's just something that we've seen over and over in the states. Crusades by politicians and the media against the video. So to me, giving them a good reason to crusade seems like a really fucking bad idea. Specifically, I think the industry needs regulations that have real legal bite on both disclosure and advertising and on the monetization of virtual rarity in video games. I don't think it's healthy game design. Uh, normally I am for developers earning money, 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 but the whole paying real money for a chance to win a virtual prize with no tangible value, I just can't approve. And frankly, I love, I absolutely adore some games that employ this technique. Hell, recently I've been enjoying the hell out of Hearthstone, right? I've been playing a lot of Hearthstone, but it would be a much better game if cards were earned through play and then traded with others or even bought as a set. But obfuscating the real price of the cards using the buy packs and then disenchant them into dust and then craft the cards that you actually want using that dust system. Obfuscating the real price of those cards doesn't improve the game. I'm sure it makes it a lot more profitable, but Hearthstone would be a better game without that. And I think, this is me, and I'm curious what you guys have to say on this, but I think that we need some sort of real pricing act where developers are required to disclose at least the average expected price you would need to pay to get each specific item, right? So if you see some rare card and you're thinking, ah, oh, I wonder, I wonder how much I would have to spend to get that, like however much dust it's going to cost, however much real money it's going to cost you to get that dust, they give that price there. Or if it's more likely that you'll be able to get it out of a pack, then they give the price for the expected average amount of packs that you would have to buy to get that card. Something along those lines. At least the odds, if not the prices. I think they ought to give the prices because it's about giving consumers accurate information about what they're really getting for their money. And we're talking about gambling with this. You're, you're, you're taking a risk. You're seeing, you're paying real money to see what you can get. And I was talking with my friend Will from Future Press about this topic earlier, and he pointed out a, a bit of, it's, maybe it's a slippery slope, I don't know, but he said that, that it could also be argued that the makers of, for example, MMOs should have to disclose the drop rates for items since players are paying money to be able to spend time to get the items. And he's like, you know, that's even worse because you're you're paying the money and then you're spending the time. And if you actually knew the real odds of you acquiring a specific item, like directly from the game, if the game's telling you, like there's there's websites out there where people data mine or collect statistics from thousands and thousands of players to try to figure out these odds. That's bullshit. That's bullshit in a lot of cases. I'm not talking about the MMOs, but going back to where you're paying cash money to get something, that those odds need to be disclosed, just like they are for lotteries and sweepstakes and things of that nature. Like they they need to disclose those. But um. But yeah, Will was saying, you know, with an MMO, you're spending both your time and your money. And he thinks that, you know, if a lot of people realized how low a chance you have to get some of the items that they're going after, that they probably wouldn't spend their time or their money trying to do it. Like they'd be able to math out, well, it's not really worth it. I don't know. I feel like to me, and this is me and I haven't formed an adequate answer yet, but 
Uh, I feel like there is a fundamental difference between spending time and spending money, but it's not something that I've worked out well enough to express, really, other than to say that the immediacy of currency is a factor. Because you're not going to spend, in one moment of weakness, 100 hours trying to get an item. You're not. Now, I'm not saying that people won't sink that amount of time in, but it, it's an ongoing decision. It'll take 100 hours <laughs> of them trying, right? It, it's not something that you can do quickly, in an instant. Um, there are, however, documented cases of indi individuals spending hundreds of hours worth of pay in a desperate attempt to buy rare items. Like, that has happened. I'm not fully sa satisfied with my answer to that, though. I think Will brings up a, a good point, though. But I feel like there is some sort of fundamental difference when people are paying in money in an attempt to buy a specific item versus paying money for access to a game and a chance to s spend time seeking an item. I don't know. Either way, I think that disguising the real prices of digital items and games is immoral and should be illegal. That's just me. And as always, I'm interested in y'all's take on things because I know there's going to be a lot of people out there who say like government regulation of what games can and can't do is bad, period, full stop. We don't need any of it. But um, I just think that it's it's not so overwhelmingly different from laws that require sweepstakes and contests of luck to disclose the odds that you actually have to win. Uh, like if I get a mailing, like there, there is an act, uh, that I think they call it the, the sweepstakes act, I guess is what a lot of people refer to it is where they have to disclose my odds of winning that sweepstakes of winning any ind individual in given prize, you know, um, or they at least have to estimate the odds. I don't, I don't think that it should be particularly different with the, with games like this. Particularly when the uh, the average user base, like the, the targeted users, tend to be fairly young. I mean, if you've got 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds playing your games and you're disguising the prices and this is something that like adults fall for, right? I mean, this th we're, we're talking about something that like grownups struggle with when you start using in-game currencies to obfuscate how much real-world currency you're actually spending to get something. This is something that adults have problems with. And you start targeting kids with it, I don't think it's good. I have a feeling that Valve is going to be in trouble for their role in developing the current economy of gambling on CSGO items, too. Um, the shit's just gone too far, and that's how it is. Speaking of going, best segue ever. Pokemon Go has absolutely taken the world by storm. And I feel particularly vindicated by it because I've spoken on this podcast in the past about how Nintendo has, from a business perspective, mismanaged their IPs for years, partially by refusing to move to mobile platforms. Well, they have now, and it's a smashing success to the surprise of, I don't know, maybe the people who were mad at me for saying Nintendo was wrong, from a business perspective, for not already doing it. Like, it's, it's different. It's a different thing for me. Like when I put on my analyst hat and I'm sitting here going, uh, they're losing money because they're not making mobile games versus me as a gamer going, I want to play a mobile game. I don't want to play a mobile game. For me, I just, I don't know. One funny thing in all of this is that Nintendo shares skyrocketed right after Go dropped from people who didn't realize that Nintendo didn't make Pokemon Go. And then plummeted when those same knuckleheads figured out that point. But Nintendo does, however, hold a large stake in Pokemon, so they're going to do all right. Of course, when I talked about this in the past, I was suggesting a conservative and reliable source of revenue. Like, 
like easing into it by like porting old games to mobile and like you know stuff like Mario 3, Link to the Past, Super Metroid, Pokemon Red on your phone. But uh, Captain N don't do anything halfway. Go is an augmented reality Pokemon game that allows you to catch Pokemon by traveling the real world. And over 75 million downloads already, something like that. Whew, it's crazy, man. Uh, augmented reality, for those of you guys who don't know, it's like, imagine you're holding your phone. You, you've probably seen Pokemon Go at this point, so this is probably a completely redundant explanation. But like, you're, you're looking through your phone's camera, you're looking on the screen, and then it overlays a game character onto the the image of the real world that you're capturing through your camera stuff like that augmented reality and there have already been some safety issues with people going in places they ought not go for the sake of catching pokemans and we've seen some businesses capitalizing on go by using lures and poke stops to bring more customers to their business so like there's individual uh places in this world where pokemon 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 are more likely to gather, right? And you can use lures to increase that likelihood. And then there's Pokestops where you can replenish your Pokeballs or whatever. <laughs> pokey, pokey, pokey. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious of the ethical concerns that there might be with Nintendo and Niantic. Niantic. Uh, being able to actually control the movement of people using this app. Now, obviously... We're not talking about mind control. It's not like they're going to say, you, Marcus, you're going to McDonald's right now. That is, I'm not talking about making a specific person go to a specific place at a specific time. But at a population scale, when you're talking about large numbers of people, they easily could make more people go to, for example, specific stores with the promise of a rare Pokemon being there. If they have official partnerships to do this, do they need to disclose that? I think we're kind of in new territory here with augmented reality games, uh, particularly because the Pokemon uh, license is so popular. I mean, that's a ton of downloads, man. They've already partnered with McDonald's. So, Pikachu, you better disclose your endorsement of Mickey D's, you little T-Martin son of a bitch. Okay, okay. Uh, honestly, I've kind of worn myself out with all these big-ass topics that are starting to make my head hurt. They're so, they're, they're so complicated. There's so many different ways to look at all this stuff. So I want to wrap this up, but I hear it. I can hear it. Can you hear it? I hear the cheering out there. I hear it. Cheering on Twitch, that is. This is something that I've been anticipating for a while now. Uh, this is something Twitch calls cheering. Uh, but a, a lot of streamers have found that running advertisements doesn't really earn much money for them. Ad revenue is honestly really low. And subscriptions being split 50-50 with Twitch makes that a tough go too. So donations have become a reliable way for streamers to earn cash. Trouble is, Twitch doesn't get a cut at all there. So here's cheering. Cheering is a way for you to pay money to buy bits and then you can cheer using bits. Uh, in other words, it's a donation to the streamer or eligible recipient, more than that in a sec, but Twitch gets a little cut of it. So you're donating to the streamer, but Twitch gets their cut of the money. Also, as the cheerer, you get different emotes and chat badges, whereas normal do donations usually result in your comment either being read via text-to-speech or the streamer playing your song or choice or what have you. How does this all play out for the streamer? I don't know. Um, because I don't, I don't stream, I'm not on Twitch, but from what I've been told, Twitch takes a smaller cut of small donations than, for example, PayPal, but for larger donations, the streamer gets more if you use PayPal instead of going through Twitch's cheering system. 
I don't know any of this. This is just what I've been told. Now, not, this is complete hearsay, I guess. But uh, one interesting point is that Twitch has enabled the ability to cheer for individual players and commentators at tournaments rather than just the stream itself. Uh, we saw that with Evo. And that's a whole new level of interaction that is pretty damn cool. So I don't know. Uh, I'm torn on this and we'll probably just have to wait and see. Twitch was going to have to do something like this because streamers were earning a lot of money kind of around the Twitch platform without actually going through Twitch. So this was definitely something that I saw coming for a, for a long time. I was like, I don't know what Twitch is going to do, how they're going to like stop people from taking direct donations from viewers. I don't know what they're going to do. Well, turns out instead of just like trying to put a stop to it directly, they've decided to make this cheering system. Now, I don't know. In the future, they may introduce rules that stop it, but we'll see. For for at least for now, they haven't. Uh, the, the main kind of draw to cheering, I guess, so far, from what I've been told, at least, is that for people who want to, like, throw 50 cents or something like that at a streamer, like a, a smaller tip, like, apparently, the streamer gets more of that than they would, like, PayPal would, would PayPal fees would eat up that entire donation, so there would be no point in making it. But um, using Twitch's system, you can do that. You can throw 50 cents here, 50 cents there. Um, and the whole, like, being able to give donations or, or, or voluntary payments. Donation's kind of a funny word, but being able to give voluntary payments to players and commentators at a tournament that you're watching live. Uh, and to be able to have that, like, visibly show up in the chat when you're doing that, too. I think that's really cool. I think that's really cool. Like, I'm throwing money at them, boys. You see me throwing money at them. One thing, uh, one thing is for sure, and this is another step away from advertisements into more direct means of funding streamers. And personally, I like that a lot. Like, that, that's just, uh, even, even YouTube Red has ended up working out pretty well for me because, uh, I never really used Adblock because, you know, it would be completely hypocritical if I did is part of the reason why. But um, I just, it, it's really good just for me to be able to pay and then not see the ads. I don't know it's worth it for a lot of people, particularly if they're already using ad block. They're kind of like, who cares? But I kind of, I tend to like things like Twitch Turbo, cheering, um, the donation systems, and YouTube Red. I like that a whole lot better than advertisements. It's just a whole lot more direct. So other little stuff that I want to talk about, just kind of little things. Um, I played Overwatch. I played some Overwatch, and it is exactly what you guys told me it was. I had asked about it on Twitter. I had asked people for their opinions on it. For those of you guys who don't know, I hate first-person shooters. I'm terrible at first-person shooters, and it's this like ridiculous, awful feedback loop of me being bad, performing poorly, disliking it more, and the more that I dislike it, the worse that I do, and it's just... I'm terrible at first-person shooters. But everybody told me, no, 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 no. No, no, no. This one's different. This is the shooter for people who hate shooters. Uh, well, and actually, I, I, I see where people are coming from f with that. Like, kind of, Overwatch has got some really kind of claustrophobic areas. <laughs> like, claustrophobic is not a good word. They have some really close-range areas where you don't have these clear lines of sight as you would in uh, some other shooters. Uh, on top of that, the character's accuracy tends to not be 
uh, super tight, like bullets having large hitboxes or um, some weapons just having a large spread to them in the first place so that even if your aim was perfect, you'd miss. Um, and the simple fact that they've got a lot of melee characters as well, like it's, I, I can absolutely see what people are talking about when they say that it's designed for people who aren't necessarily into first-person shooters. Now, having said that, when I was playing some training matches against the AI, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is pretty cool. This is pretty fun. Uh, when I played my first, like, quick matches, the, the first uh, two matches I played against real people, myself, uh, I was having fun. I was actually having some degree of success because I was playing with other people who just absolutely did not have a clue what was going on. Um... And it was, it was, I was having a little bit of fun. And then I tried playing with a friend who's been playing for a bit. So he's, he's got a little bit of MMR or whatever. And so we're grouped up together and man, I did not have any fun at all. Now, I mean, it's to be expected that I would be playing against people who are better at the game in the first place. They know the characters, they know everything that the characters can do. They know the best time to do it. They know counters for other characters. They know when to switch characters. Um, and also knowing the maps, like knowing where the best sniper spots are because I was watching my buddy play for a little bit and it's like he's shooting at enemies that I didn't see that I didn't even know they were there and it's just he knew to look for them in that specific spot because he knows that's normally where snipers are going to set up because he's played a lot right uh so I was just kind of thrown to the wolves there and I didn't have any fun at all I did not have any fun at all so now I'm kind of torn like I don't know what I want to do it was it was enjoyable a little bit uh, particularly when I was playing by myself, but I don't want to play by myself. The whole point of playing a game like that for me is just to have something fun and quick that you can do with friends. But my friends are all better than me, so uh, I can't really play with them like, and not not and have a good time because I'll just be getting killed over and over and over. It's fucking Goldeneye all over again, man. But yeah, overall, I would say that um, it, it's got it's very slick. It's got a very high production value. The um, the graphics. They're extremely cartoony. They look nice, um, but it, it's kind of typical Blizzard stuff where they they want to do something that kind of has this distinct style. It looks good. I mean, if you like the style, it looks good. If you don't like the style, you're going to hate it, but um, it doesn't require a lot of system resources. Like You're not going to find super detailed textures or anything like that. Like it's, it's made to go easy on your system while still looking good. That's typical Blizzard. It's, you know, when you're aiming for a big audience, that's what you do, right? But yeah, I played a little bit of Overwatch. It was, it was, it was good. I, I think that if you're, if you're a little bit interested in it, then it might be worth, it might be worth checking it out. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much I'll end up actually playing of it though, just because, ugh. And as for what else I've been doing, well, I've been doing a couple of things that I can't talk about, but I have been playing a lot of Demon's Souls. I'm, I am working on that in-depth playthrough. If you guys missed that piece of news, there is an in-depth Demon's Souls playthrough, uh, similar to From the Dark. Uh, I'm hoping to surpass or at least equal from the dark with this Demon Souls playthrough. And that's kind of a challenge, but um, yeah, I'm working on it. And I'm hoping that by the end of August, you will be watching those videos. Okay, that wraps up Poison Arrow for July of 2016. I'm glad I finally got my giggles under control. <laughs> uh, there's a lot more There's a lot more going on that I can't talk about yet. Soon-ish, teehee. Guys, I'm Marcus, also known as EMB. Do not forget to speak your mind on all the topics, either in the comments or on Reddit. And also, don't forget your...
poison arrows. Fuck you, table. Fuck you, chair piece. I'm out. That video is amazing.